Friends, would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3, I'm going to read this chapter in its entirety. Hear now God's word. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called to Samuel again a third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel in which at the sound of it every two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I am a a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And I can think of no better prayer before we open your word and hear it preached to ask that you would be the God who lets none of his words fall to the ground. Would you do that this morning in our midst, in the powerful name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Well, friends, this is a a powerful and for some of us a very familiar story in the life of Samuel. But as we approach it this morning, I want us to think about the interpretive tool of types, of typology. That's how we're going to think and talk about this story today. Now, a type is simply a person, place, or thing that prefigures, alludes to, or foreshadows something else. Happens all the time in our media and in our literature. We see types all over the place. Sometimes we catch them and sometimes we miss them. 
Several years ago, uh, my family and I had the opportunity to live in Manhattan for a summer. It was fantastic. We got to do a bunch of fun things. One of those things was to see my very first Broadway show. And I'm embarrassed to admit it, but this is the first time I learned that Broadway is not a single theater. It's not like AMC Dutch Square, where you kind of show up and say, are we going to do the 4 o'clock Lion King or the 7 o'clock Chicago? No, it's a bunch of theaters on a road that's aptly named Broadway which is why Off-Broadway makes so much more sense to me now. Um, But while we were there, we saw The Lion King. Fantastic show. Go and see it. But if you think about it, Simba, the little baby lion in The Lion King, is a type of Moses. Bear with me as you hear these connections. Both are princes in their own homeland. Both are driven away by an accusation of murder. Both spend time maturing away from their homeland. Both are confronted by someone to return. And both do return and deliver their people from oppression. Simba is a type of Moses. These things abound in literature and in media and also in the scriptures as we go to study God's word. When we think about biblical types, primarily we see something in the Old Testament that becomes a type that prefigures or foreshadows or alludes to something in the New Testament and often the type finds its focal point in Jesus. Things appear to be types of Jesus and show us aspects of his ministry. You'll remember Jesus told us to read our Bibles this way. When he was raised from the dead and he was on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke, he says, or Luke says of him, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So when Jesus opened his Old Testament, he saw types of himself in Moses and in the prophets and the writings he drew out and he saw things that connected to himself and to his ministry. Now sometimes topology in the Bible is very subtle. It's hard to catch. Um, it, it, It doesn't scream to us and it takes several readings to understand these things. For instance, we're going to read in our morning reading through the Old Testament that Israel will ultimately disobey God and they will wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Fast forward to Jesus' ministry, and before he begins his public ministry, he himself goes into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. And it's almost like Jesus is this new and better Israel that obeys the will of the Father in the way that the first Israel never did and couldn't do. We read this morning that Moses himself, he climbs up on a mountain and he delivers God's law. And at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he climbs up on a mountain and he speaks God's law to the people in a sermon that is very blandly titled, The Sermon on the Mount. And it's as if Jesus is this new and better Moses who doesn't just receive and give God's law, but he speaks as one with authority and the people are amazed. So some of these types, some of these connections, we're not going to get those on our first reading of the Bible. They're deep, they're subtle, and they begin to to grow over time in our imaginations as we see these things in God's word. But sometimes types, as in the case of the prophet Samuel, they hit us over the head with a typological two-by-four. This is not something that we're supposed to miss, that Samuel the prophet is a type of Jesus. He prefigures, he shows us in fits and starts who Jesus is and what he's like. There's a lot of clues that help us get to that point. 
Both Samuel and Jesus, they have miraculous births. Both Samuel and Jesus, their births are surrounded by a very similar song. If you compare Hannah's song to Mary's song, both are said to grow in stature before God and men. Both have very priest-like roles, but neither of them are from the tribe of Levi. Both of them act as intermediaries between God and men, and both of them are raised from the dead. Samuel is a type of Jesus. Samuel is a signpost who points us to Jesus. But there's even a bigger clue in the passage of 1 Samuel that we didn't get to read this morning. And that is in chapter 2, verse 35, in which God, through a prophet, says to Eli, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out as my anointed forever. In the very next scene from that prophecy, we see little Samuel lying in the tabernacle. Do you hear this? We are promised a priest who is entirely faithful who will perfectly do everything in the heart and mind of God, and he will keep this job as priest forever and ever. Now, I hate to deliver a spoiler so, easy, so early in this book, but that ain't Samuel. We're going to say a lot of sweet things about the prophet Samuel. He's a wonderful guy. If he ever listens to this sermon series, I think he'll be really touched. But immortality and perfection are not two things that we're going to claim for him because Samuel is a type. And Samuel and other biblical types are like salty beer nuts. They whet our appetite for the main event. We see them, we spend time with them, and we smack our lips and we wait to hear what is the main thing that we're longing for. So I want us to dive into the story and I want to see the ways in which Samuel shows us Jesus. The story itself is very simple. We're familiar with this. God calls Samuel three times. He, He names him, he calls him. Samuel thinks it's Eli. He goes to Eli. There's confusion. Eli says, I'm not calling you. Go lie down until he understands on the third time, actually, this is God calling him because God's word was so rare. Go lay down. And when God calls you, Samuel, answer him and tell him that you're listening. So Samuel does that, and God appears to him, and he speaks the first vision or prophecy that Samuel has ever heard from the Lord, and that is that I will judge the house of Eli forever. In the morning, Samuel goes to Eli, and he tells him what that prophecy is. Now, now these are the the events that happen. These are the, the facts and the timeline as they appear But that's not the way our Bible presents this story to us because the Bible is not just an outline, it's not just a timeline, it's literature and there are details here that draw this story out. Look at verses 2 and 3. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So the scene is set, it's nighttime, it's dark in Shiloh in more ways than one. This elderly priest, Eli, his eyes are growing dim physically out of old age, but we've also seen that they are growing dim spiritually. Eli cannot see what ought to be. He can't tell the difference between Hannah, who prays in the tabernacle, and his son, Hophni, who prays on women in the tabernacle. 
Meanwhile, he's in his room, eyes growing dim, and, and we pan to see the lamp of God, an earthen vessel that's full of oil that should burn forever before the Lord. But we're nearing dawn, and no one's refilled it, and it's kind of flickering, this, this light, this lamp of God. And it's about to go out, but it's not out. And little Samuel is laying before it in the glow of the lamp of God near the ark of God. Do you see the stage being set for this great role reversals between priests and prophets? By morning time after Samuel hears the prophecy that God gives him, verse 15 says, Samuel lay until morning and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. We've seen the doors of the house of the Lord before, right? We've seen Eli sitting at the doorpost when Hannah comes to pray and he thinks she's drunk and he rebukes her. We've seen Hophni and Phinehas at the doorpost where they're trying to pick up women. Nobody in Eli's house has been able to protect the door of the tabernacle, its mission of purity and peace. And now come morning, this new prophet priest opens the door in the house of the Lord and he welcomes the dawn of a brand new day. The literature in our Bibles makes this story pop and come alive to us. And there are so many details here that I want to talk about this morning, but we're not going to have time to talk about them. If we could, I want to talk about the judgment of Eli. Eli is not being judged because his sons are sinners. No parent, no matter how often you hit them over the head with the proverb, raise up a child in the way he should go and he will not depart from the path, can force conversion or sanctification on a child that's raised in their household. No parent can do that. Eli is not being judged because his sons are sinners. He is being judged because he is complicit in their sin and he is enjoying the fruits of their wicked behavior we learned in chapter 2. Also, if we had time, I want to talk about this growing theme of derelict dads. From Eli to Samuel to Saul to David to Solomon, the book of Samuel has more inept absentee fathers than every Disney movie put together. It's awful. This theme is going to grow and grow in this book. Also, if we had time, I would want to talk about the pronouncement of eternal judgment on Eli and his house in which he will not receive atonement for it forever and its relationship to Hebrews chapter 10, which says if you snub the cross of Christ, you trample it underfoot, and you will not then find mercy in that cross. We don't have time to talk about any of those things, because there's something even more pressing to see in this passage. Little Samuel, he gets up in the morning, and he greets the morning with his first test as a prophet. He has the word of the Lord, and it's a word that's against Eli. And if you remember, Eli is as good as his adoptive father. In this passage, Eli calls him, my son. He's essentially raised Samuel this entire time since Hannah dedicated him to the Lord and left him at the temple. And the first call for Samuel as a prophet is to go to his adoptive father and to tell him that he will face eternal punishment. That's a heavy weight to bear. But miraculously, and with the help of Eli threatening his life, Samuel tells him everything. He tells him everything that God told him to tell him. And the story ends with this powerful description of Samuel in verse 19. 
The Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. You see that? As Simba is to Moses, so Samuel is to Jesus. Samuel is a type who points us to Jesus. Now Samuel himself, he's a human, fallible prophet. He sins, he makes mistakes. He's going to raise two sons that sadly look a lot like Hophni and Phinehas. Unlike the eternal prophet priest in chapter 2, verse 35, Samuel himself will die but not until he gives us a glimpse of who Jesus is and what Jesus is is like. I want us to fast forward from this scene in 1 Samuel chapter 3, a thousand years to get us into the gospel of John chapter 14 in the upper room where there's this really funny, goofy scene with the disciple named Philip. Now, I would never, ever want to be a disciple of Jesus for the sole reason that these guys say and do a lot of stupid things, and those things get recorded in the world's best-selling book that is going to last forever and ever. And I'm just too fragile for something like that. But Philip has been with Jesus his entire ministry, and Jesus has made it plain, especially in the gospel according to John, that everything he speaks, everything he shows, everything he does is nothing but the will of the Father. Think about places like John chapter 12. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Well, he's spoken that throughout his ministry, but we get into this upper room, and Jesus, before his crucifixion, is talking to his 11 disciples, and Philip says to him, after the foot washing, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. I love that. Um, Lord, um, let's make a deal here. If you can bring the eternal Godhead who dwells as spirit in heaven and is ministered to by millions of angels, if he could descend off of his throne and cross the glassy sea and show up in the upper room, let's say in the next hour, and we could see him, then I think I speak for the other disciples to say that would be enough for us. I mean, that's okay. We'd call it quits and we're ready to follow you to the end. Wow, Philip, that's really generous of you to offer that to Jesus. And Jesus, who is ever so gentle, says to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father's. You see me, you see the Father, you hear the words I say, you are hearing the Father's words. In our passage, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, it gives us that beautiful Christ-like picture. That Samuel, he carries the words of God, and by God's help, he does not let a single word fall to the ground. I picture Samuel with a basket full of God's words. In that basket, there are very heavy, stern words of judgment. And in that basket, there are sweet and winsome promises. And by God's help, not a single word from that basket falls to the ground. That's what Jesus is like. Samuel shows us what Jesus is like. Jesus holds the words of God. 
a transcendent God who dwells in inexpressible glory, whose appearance makes men faint and go blind, a God who when he speaks he can strip the forest bare, a God who holds court over every atom from here to the farthest galaxy. Jesus hears each word from the Father perfectly because he and the Father are one. And then Jesus carries each word perfectly because he gets his authority from the Father. And then he speaks each word perfectly because his words are the Father's words and the Father's words are his words. It is impossible for one of God's words to fall to the ground because God speaks to himself, through himself in the Trinity. Jesus is the perfect prophet. Now I can see that we're kind of letting the the typology of Samuel lead us into the deep waters of the inter-Trinitarian economy of words as God speaks to himself within the Trinity. And I can tell by Glaze looks that most of us are still in the shallow end of the theological pool, myself included. So I think it's just important to say this very plainly and simply. What Jesus says, God says, and what God says, Jesus says, They are one and the same. The Father's words are the Son's words. Jesus says, If you will receive me by faith, your sins are forgiven. That's the Father's words. Doesn't matter if you find yourself the most vile sinner in this room. It doesn't matter what you've been told by other people. It doesn't matter if you've done things this weekend that make you hate yourself and think that others hate you. If you come to faith in Christ Jesus and you hear from Jesus these words, they are as good as the Father's words. I tell you, your sins are forgiven. Jesus says, so also you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. It does not matter if we find ourselves on the business end of events that threaten to undo us and swallow us, debt, strife, failing health. You can get lost in a world of trying to interpret what God is up to in these events in my life and what he's doing and what he really thinks about me and if he's judging me and if he just plain dislikes me. It doesn't matter because Jesus says, I will see you again and no one will take your joy from you. And when he says that, not a single word from the Father drops to the ground. I want to ask us, all of us, all of us who doubt, all of us who fear, all of us who hate ourselves, all of us who are blinded by pride, what is our source material? Where are we getting these words that rattle around in our minds and they replay themselves again and again and again because I tell you over and against cheap words that come from dark places in our hearts, over and against hateful words that are spoken by other people that fall to the ground cheaply, we have before us the eternal prophet Jesus who speaks for the Father and not a single word of God falls to the ground. Let's pray together. Lord, let us hear with faith. Let us understand that the Son shows us the Father. 
And that when we hear from the Son, we hear from you. And that that truth and your words can trump any lie that we hear or believe or doubt. Would you do that in our midst? Would you make us a people who listen closely to and believe in the very words of Jesus? We ask in your name. Amen.